Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm Lucy Gelman. And I'm Tom Breen. Colin McEnroe is on the run from the law this week, so we've hijacked the nose, his weekly pop culture roundtable. We're at Gateway Community College in New Haven, and we'll spend the second half of the show on two more Oscar-nominated movies, the Queen and Freddie Mercury biopic, Bohemian Rhapsody, and Green Book, a movie that straight-facedly bills itself as quote-unquote based on a true friendship. But before that, a look at this week in pop culture. The Grammys were Sunday, and they might have actually sort of been okay for once. On Tuesday, a wire fox terrier named King was crowned winner of the Westminster Dog Show. Aziz Ansari has addressed his Me Too allegations in a stand-up set. And GQ has declared that the next wave in menswear is fly fishing? We'll talk about some of that. Or all of it. Or none of it. After this news. I'm Lucy Gelman. And I'm Tom Breen. And this is The Nose, the mostly weekly pop culture roundtable on The Colin McEnroe Show. Colin's vacationing in Fiji this week with his parakeet, so we've commandeered the show. Later this show, we're going to talk about two Best Picture nominees, Bohemian Rhapsody, the new biopic about Queen and Freddie Mercury, and Green Book, a movie that is quote-unquote based on a real friendship. But first, we're going to talk about the latest chapter in Me Too allegations surrounding the comic Aziz Ansari, who issued a public public apology earlier this week. And we might get to Esquire's interesting and kind of confounding the life of an American boy at 17, profiling a white Midwestern teenager just in time for Black History Month. But first, we should tell you who's here with us at Gateway Community College in New Haven. Mercy Quay is a podcast host, freelancer, and principal consultant for The Narrative Project. And Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent, a producer at WNHH. He's in about 55 different bands. And if I have this correct, <laughs> Brian, I think that, you know, the thump, thump, clap before We Will, We Will Rock You by Queen, you were the ghostwriter for that second thump, right? <laughs> Initially, they were just going to do one thump, and you wrote the second one. And you're wondering yeah. how I got that new car. <laughs> <laughs> and I should say that Tom Breen, in addition to being my boyfriend, is a film critic and reporter for the New Haven Independent, most recently made famous by having a box cutter brandished in his face by a predatory landlord. You'll have to go to the New Haven <laughs> well, Independent for that, that laugh-filled story right there. Uh, and Lucy Gelman, in addition to being uh, my lovely girlfriend, is editor of the arts paper and host of WNHH's Kitchen Sink. And for everyone listening, you know, we, we've been going out for over five years. We applied to co-host the show. So if you've been going out for you know, nearly a decade and you want to co-host the Colin McEnroe Show, just send in an email. They're down. Yeah, They're yeah, open. absolutely. Well, just couples, I, just but as a couple, send in, yeah. Well, you know, just have to prove you've been going out for over five not years. Not considering yep. individuals or singles on this one. Ooh, boy. No, no. <laughs> so, uh, but I do think Tom, what uh, especially stood out to them was the role that um, informed consent and gender equity has played in our relationship, which seems like a perfect segue into our first topic. So, about a year ago, a piece was published on Babe.net called "I Went on a Date with Aziz Ansari, and It Turned into the." Worst night of my life. It accused Ansari, who is a comic, of sexual misconduct, of pressuring uh, the subject of the article into various sexual acts on a date. This week, 
For the first time in his stand-up stand up set, uh, Ansari addressed the issue. So Brian, uh, well, first let's, uh, let's go over uh, what he said a little bit. So he said in his apology, um, quote, it's t- a terrifying thing to, to talk about. There were times I felt really upset and humiliated and embarrassed. And ultimately, I just felt terrible this person felt this way. So, Brian, I wanted to first go to you. Um, This is something that you have talked to a writer about. So Ansari was actually in New Haven for a set not that long ago. Yeah. And uh, and, uh, C.A. Nolte, who is a wonderful freelancer for the New Haven Independent, Mm -hmm. went to this show and sort of thought about the issue in, I I think, a a really, really uh, deep way. So kick it off for us. Yeah. So, I mean, the the context for it is that um, Ansari has been... I know that we've talked about uh, Louis C.K. a lot on this show. Um, Ansari has has been likewise kind of, you know, slowly trying to revitalize his career. So we did a series of shows um, in the summer and the fall, and New Haven's was in September, if I remember right. And um, what they kind of were, were I mean, yeah, I, you know, it really felt like he was testing the waters just to see what the public response to him taking a microphone at all would be. You know, was was it going? Would people show up for the show? Would there be more protesters than fans? <laughs> you know, what exactly happened? Um, and in the course of writing about it, um, uh, Nolte did a really good job. She's 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 a comedy fan. She has a, a thick skin, and is also uh, really quite smart. She should be here right now. <laughs> <laughs> in any case. Um, you know, well, we sort of at the time he didn't really address the allegations directly, but he did. Um, you know, he did sort of put himself out there, and there was a there was a sense that there was the beginning of some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of reckoning with with what had happened. He certainly wasn't denying it. He wasn't defensive. Um, he wasn't all of those kind of ugly things that Louis C.K. has turned out to be, mm. which I think is a pretty important piece of this. So that I think that he's been working up to. You know the, the 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 public acknowledgement of of what happened and exactly what he wanted to say about it. And I I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't just address a little bit the context in which this first came up. So this article yeah. in Babe.net, which was published after the initial allegations, it's, the article is by Katie Way. Um, it doesn't name the woman who clearly in this article feels violated. We get that she feels violated. And I want to say we, I think, all agree that it's really important to believe survivors. Um, But I believe that the article does this woman a disservice in that it is a poor piece of journalism. And so I'm wondering if, uh, Mercy, we can go to you and, and talk a little bit about that, but then also how you feel like Ansari has handled this situation. Yeah, no, I think that there are oftentimes when the content of the story, right, like the purpose of the story, the story actually being told, the words behind the narrative, the language, uh, overrides how bad the language is. Mm. And this is, I don't know, it might be one of those cases. Um, but I, where where I think the <clears throat> the the journalist sort of does a good job is... I don't think there's anyone in this room that didn't feel like they weren't in that room having Aziz Ansari digitally insert them, right? Like, Mm -hmm. regardless of what your genitalia might be, right? I think that everyone can can agree that I think that there was a really descriptive um, uh, narrative that she kind of put together. Mm -hmm. That said, um, this is a weird 
uh, case study that we are observing, I think, um, of how to come back from being me too, right? Because two things are very true. The first thing, rape culture, very real. Second thing, uh, because it's been so normalized, because rape culture is incredibly normalized in our society, we need to normalize a process of redemption as well, right? Because we have all been indoctrinated into um, into this sort of pervasive culture that that what I think um, Ansari's example showed us is it's not always the Harvey Weinstein case. It's sometimes the guy that we really like who's doing things that like are a little bit uncomfortable and then become increasingly uncomfortable to mm. the person he's doing he's doing them to right and so this was again sort of that like case study of reimagining what rape culture is and mm. what it looks like and how you know pervasive it is the thought of it and Tom, I, I want you to jump in there because I know that one of the things that stood out in this apology, which I actually found very moving as someone who's written about Me Too and who's thought about Me Too a lot, is that Ansari said at one point, you know, if if this has taught me anything, it's taught me that I really need to go the extra mile. And did he mess up there when he said that? Yeah, I think that is a great question. And we should acknowledge that even though it seems like everyone in this room, including me, is leaning towards believing that this is a model for how you respond to Me Too allegations. It's thoughtful. It's introspective. It's not aggressive. It's not bitter. And it recognizes the humanity of the person who you've made feel somewhere between incredibly uncomfortable and actually assaulted. But let me read uh, one another quote uh, from his <laughs> pop-up stand-up set in New York on Monday. He said, if that has made not just me, but other guys think about this and just be more thoughtful and aware and willing to go that extra mile and make sure someone else is comfortable in that moment, that's a good thing. Mercy, I totally agree that I think this is, for the most part, you know, the brief snippets that we've gotten from what Anzari said uh, on Monday, this is a good model for what to do. However, I cringe when I read that go mm. that extra mile comment because what that tells me is that he is part of his brain is still thinking this is something extra that men have to do. Yeah. Whereas the extra is just making sure that you're not sexually assaulting right. someone. Right. Did that set your you know little what? feelers off at all? He's not wrong. I think every guy needs to go the extra mile and not assault someone. <laughs> <laughs> right. And if that's an extra mile for you, you know, I will if it if it means that I have to get you a bus ticket to go that extra mile, like whatever I can do. No, um, all jokes aside, I think that I think that your point is incredibly um, accurate that we and and still indicative of what our rape culture is and how normal it feels that um, that approaching sexual interactions with uh, members of the opposite sex or the same sex, you know, regardless um it has been so sullied for millennia, right? Um, I think what it means and what this what this moment is teaching us is that um, uh, approaching that with equity requires a second thought, right? And I talk about, and I, I've always talked about this with like race, that, you know, if you are, you know, raised white in America, um, your first thought is always going to be a racist thought. So you have to program yourself to have a second, more educated thought. And I think... I'm not going to put words in his mouth. I think this was delivered poorly um, because I think he still does think that this is a, a you know an auxiliary step. But I can sort of give some, I, you know, I can offer some forgiveness for that. I, I have I have a little bit of grace there specifically because I think he is a product of rape culture and he's trying to unprogram that himself. 
Lucy, I don't, I don't want to make uh, too bold of a claim, but Uh-oh. I'm going to throw it your way anyway. Is this a turning point in the Me Too movement in terms of how people who have been accused of a whole very wide spectrum of sexual misbehavior to actual crimes, is this a turning point in terms of how people can respond and how they can maybe be reintegrated back into you know, what many Are people already about love about them? A Me Too reentry program? <laughs> yes. Okay. Maybe. I, I mean, that was actually, so my, my next question would have been, of course, is, is this a flash in the pan or is this a template that we're going to see, especially other comics, but also other prominent figures in Hollywood go forward with? And Tom, I hope so, but I don't know if it's too soon to tell. Brian and Mercy, I would love to get your your voices in on Turning this Turning point, issue. Brian? Obviously, too soon to tell. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that... Where's the fun in that? Come on, make a grand right, yeah. right. I will predict the future now. <laughs> how, how, wait, also, no, I want to know how... Uh, what What does this weigh on the bryometer? <laughs> it's bryometer, I believe. <laughs> you mean this whole, like, the, the whole, like, is it is it is the apology better than the crime is worse yeah. kind of thing? I mean, like, like we were saying at the beginning, I mean, it is, it is something... Uh, it is in some ways useful that it's not that he doesn't have this super long track record the way that right, Harvey Weinstein right, does right. or Louis C.K. does. Um, that it's a, that we it's, know of. Yeah, that it's that it's like it's an incident that he's responding to, and, you know, and it's, and built up a lot of goodwill before that. And the and the apology seems sincere. I mean, but whatever, however this shakes out, I mean, there there is a part of me that just says there has to be a way back. Like there, we we yeah. have to find. Yeah. It can't just be that that we just keep scorching the earth and scorching the earth and scorching the earth. Like it doesn't, uh, I mean, for some people, yeah, but for everybody, I don't know. I mean, it, it, there, there has to be, there has to be a way for people to come back from things right. if we're going to move forward with all of this in some sort of productive way. I, I, I think that the Me Too um, movement has offered us this opportunity to create a narrative, I'm sorry, to create a rubric on what redemption looks like and, mm. Um, yeah. Not even just redemption, uh, a rubric on what, um, you know, uh, coming back from uh, toxic masculinity could be reprogramming yourself from yeah, toxic like, what masculinity. What does that look like? Right. I mean, it's something we have to work out. Yeah, well, I think that's an, an interesting transition to the next uh, the topic we're going to talk about before we jump into the movies, uh, which and actually I want to say our, our wonderful producer, uh, Jonathan McPants, has pointed out that it's been a year since the first allegations and I guess only allegations against Ansari have come out and no other allegations have surfaced since then. So that's I think that's something yes. that is worth thinking about. So the second topic that we need to talk about today briefly is this new Maybe fascinating is the word that I will uh, apply to it to start, <laughs> but a new essay in Esquire magazine uh, that is called The Life of an American Boy at 17. It's written by Jennifer Percy, and it follows for what feels like tens of thousands of words, but it's <laughs> <Yes>. probably <laughs> maybe just 5,000 yes. words, but it's a, it's a pretty hefty article. It's quite uh, like you and, as a white person <laughs> to inflate your value on the words there. <laughs> But it follows a 17-year-old named Ryan Morgan who lives in, I believe, West Bend, Wisconsin, but in a very conservative area in the Midwest. He is exceptionally tall. So remember, he's like 6'7", and he's 17 years old. But also, this is this is the first in a series of articles that Esquire will be running about growing up in America, and they just so happen to pick uh, for their March issue, but published during February, of course, Black History Month. Uh, 
you know, this unknown species uh, in the American historical landscape of <laughs> the white man. <laughs> so, uh, Mercy, I'm going to throw it over to you first because I remember in our, I didn't actually see any comments from you in the email thread before, but I saw this was a must talk about yeah, on sure. your list. Absolutely. So why is this essay about a white 17-year-old <laughs> in West Bend, Wisconsin, a must talk about? Uh, because this essay is what I like to call... Um, uh, garbage, but because it is Black History Month, I have to go the extra mile um, <laughs> and take me on, uh, you know, join me on this journey. This is not just garbage. This is hot garbage on a summer day in the hood, right? Like, this is bad, right? There is no. Okay. So when Aziz Ansari talks about going the extra mile, what I said is, you know, what the the grace that I extended um, was that he's reprogramming himself. So sometimes it does feel like an extra mile. The extra mile here would have been to realize that it's Black History Month. And at the very least, it's insensitive. The I mean, if you're not reprogramming yourself outside of, you know, uh, racism, I think even at that, this kid is boring. Number one, this kid is incredibly boring. I, you know, for well, I don't I don't remember exactly what the word count or what the inch, but it was excruciating to read and empathize with i am i supposed to empathize with a kid who one is who 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 um i'll say suffers as an ironic point suffers from white privilege and uh height privilege and attractive right like pretty privilege and uh wealth privilege I, there's you suffer from all of these levels of privilege and I'm supposed to empathize with you. You have a job, an apprenticeship that you go to in the morning. That sounds really, really lucky, right? He ha he wakes up at 5 a.m. How hard it must be for you to wake up at 5 a.m. and have the opportunity to get an apprenticeship for credit for school, which will actually mean that puts it puts you in a better position to apply for college. We can talk about all of the implications of your privilege, but actually you're just far too boring for me to give any additional cares <laughs> lucy the author quotes uh the 17 year old subject of the article as saying quite explicitly that he is not extreme right he's not one of the kids that goes to the parking lot after school and raises his hand in the air and says seek hail trump mm -hmm. which is kind of scary to think about that mm -hmm. there are kids doing that but i guess he's trying to position himself something in the middle uh did you find this in any way a valuable look at you know, whiteness as an ethnic identity. I mean, if one, if there's anything positive that's come out of the Trump election, maybe it's recognizing that, that you know, they're, when conservatives decry identity politics, they have forever refused to recognize that the identity politics that so many of them play is a white identity politics. And so is this a look at whiteness in the way that we're constantly referring to other ethnic identities in the United States? But not white people. No, I'm, I mean, I, I just don't think we need this article. And I think the through line between the babe.net article, not to go back to it, and this is uh, we're sitting in a room full of journalists. Um, all of us have been reporters. All of us are radio personalities. And my question is, you know, where where is the line with responsible journalism? Right. Yeah. I, mean, I actually, like halfway through the piece, started to feel some. Like, were you, did you feel attacked? No, I felt a little sorry for the reporter because you could just sense they're just like, we don't really have a story here. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, it was like it's a long word count because there's no, like, there's no narrative thread. There's just these kind of vignettes about this, about this kid's life. And I felt bad for the kid because he seems like this, like, normal kid who is suddenly, like, the subject of a national 
<laughs> national level essay. And let's, yeah, you know, I, I, I started thinking about that kind of thing, just going like, this is, this, I'm, I, this is not the sort of article I I would I felt like as an editor I would have killed this. Yeah, no, through. absolutely <laughs> right, right. Like I would have like I, the reporter would have said I'm not getting anywhere. There's no narrative here, and I would have said let's just let this one go. <laughs> like let's find <laughs> let's find another kid. Let's find, find someone another else. Story. At the at the at the least because let's it find just didn't else, right? like I you know it just seems like it's an awful lot of attention to bring to something that just like doesn't have a lot going on in it. I, so you know. as you're empathizing with the reporter, I I wish this was a podcast because I want to mm. hear all of those like awkward moments where she's like, okay, yeah, uh huh, that's it. <laughs> a lot of awkward silences. I'm yeah. sure. I, and at the same time, it's like, what are you expecting this this like 17 year old to tell you? Right, that's, right. that's going to be so amazing. You know, it's like it's it's. I mean, look, if, if a reporter interviewed me at 17, I would probably sound like this like this kid. I'd just be like, well, yeah, things are okay. <laughs> you know, like, like, how am I supposed to articulate these like these huge things at the age of 17? It's not, it's it's a lot to ask. I, I, <laughs> it's a lot to ask for a 17-year-old to perform for, sure. I will say, if anything good has come out of this article, it's, people should check out the clapbacks to this article. So I, I do want to say, latest episode of NPR's It's Been a Minute, is everything that the uh, Esquire piece is not National Public Radio's It's Been a Minute host Sam Sanders tweeted. We go to East Oakland ahead of the anniversary of hashtag Parkland. I don't know how I feel about that. uh, To talk about everyday gun violence that plagues black and brown kids throughout this country. And we are about to go into our first break, but I want to throw a, a few uh, facts out there. And we've spoken about some of the, the negative and very understandable, from my perspective, at least, uh, feedback to this Esquire piece. But some people have doubled down on it, most notably the editor-in-chief of Esquire, <laughs> who, um, who published, his name is Jay Field, and I don't know if anyone read this, but he published an essay. I think the headline speaks for itself, but it's called, Why Your Ideological Echo Chamber Isn't Just Bad for You. So... He clearly does not agree that Esquire's done anything wrong, but also Esquire has said that this is part one in a series where they're going to be looking right. at people. You know, uh, I think so that they've on one out- level the editor in chief is like excellent that we're all talking about this. <laughs> I mean, but, Stay right, tuned but also for episode wh- two. While we yeah. give them credit for this being episode one in the series, I want to go back to that reprogramming and that extra mile. Your first thought, as, as a white person in America and as white people running industries in America, is to put the white person first. If this is the first in a series, you could have gone with anyone else, mm-hmm. and totally. you would have avoided the 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 storm of clapbacks. Because it would have pushed it into a different month. Well, let's just hope they didn't put it first because this is their strongest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, I think, shall, shall we go into our first break? Yeah, let's go into our first break. So, I'm Lucy Gelman, and this is Tom Breen. Uh, we're here with Mercy Quay and Brian Slattery, and we will be back with the notes in just a minute. A bad little kid moved into my neighborhood. He won't do nothing right just until that looks so good.
I'm Tom Breen. I'm not the author of those inspiring lyrics, unfortunately, Radio Goo Goo and Radio Gaga, but I am one of the guest co-hosts of today's The Colin McInerney Show with... I'm Lucy Gelman, and this is The Nose, the weekly pop culture roundtable on The Colin McInerney Show. Colin's out this week having his hair permed, so we're your hosts the entire hour. And we are joined by Mercy Quay, a podcast host, freelancer, and principal consultant for The Narrative Project, and Brian Slattery, arts editor for the New Haven Independent, host of Northern Remedy, and a producer at WNHH, and a band member in at least 55 bands we've established. But not, we're not sure if Queen was one of those bands or is one of those bands. Maybe we'll was find out. Not at yeah. It was <laughs> one of those right? <laughs> <laughs> but so we, for this segment, uh, we are going, and really for the rest of the notes, we're going to be talking about two Oscars. Oscar-nominated uh, kind of best picture dumpster fires. movies, dumpster fires, as one of our co-hosts likes to call them. The first one we'll talk about is the new biopic of the band Queen and its frontman Freddie Mercury. Uh, this is called Bohemian Rhapsody. It's directed mostly by Brian Singer until he was fired from it by the studio at the very end of the shoot. It was produced partly by Queen's manager, Jim Miami Beach. It's nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Actor for Rami Malek, who plays Freddie Mercury, and it won Best Picture Drama at the Golden Globes. It's been kind of an unexpectedly big box office hit, especially worldwide, where it's earned $845 million so far this uh, since it came out, which I believe Mick Pence told us that that is the second highest grossing drama ever after Titanic. Uh, and it came out uh, this week on Blu-ray and DVD and for rental on iTunes and Amazon. I know a number of us watched it on streaming services. Uh, so the first clip we're going to hear before we jump into our conversation uh, is the band's first meeting. I think it's kind of a blur. There are a lot of montages in this movie, but I think it's the first meeting with a record label, and they are describing what Queen is all about. So this is Queen, and you must be Freddie Mercury. You've got a gift you all have. So tell me, what makes Queen any different from all of the other wannabe rock stars I meet? I'll tell you what it is. We're four misfits who don't belong together playing to the other misfits. The outcasts, right at the back of the room, who are pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. We're a family. But no two of us are the same. Paul. Paul Prenter. Meet Queen, our new signing. Paul will be looking after you day to day. Pleasure. If I can get you on the radio, maybe I can get you on television. Top of the pops. Hopefully. And then? And then, it's only the biggest television program in the country no one's ever even heard of you. Look, I admire your enthusiasm. If it goes well, if it happens, I've got a promotional tour of Japan in mind. We want more. Every band wants more. Every band's not queen. So, Brian, one of the uh, most kind of painful and also uh, fun to think about things about classic rock, which I think Queen falls into, is that you know it may have had some kind of counterculture cachet when it was really uh, happening in, in the 60s and 70s. But for by sure. now, this right. music is not for the outcasts, the right. misfits of right. the world, you know, the everyone who you know listen well, to even radio by, even by then it really wasn't even either. even by then although certainly yeah. i think in this movie and I, I think freddie mercury certainly would not qualify as someone who look, was looking to blend in but for right. a a movie that you know you know puts in the mouth of its main character this band this music maybe this movie is all about you know 
being on the edges and not fitting in and being weird and being a loser. And here is your anthem. Uh, can we say that about Bohemian Rhapsody? Is this tr- is this movie trying to appeal to the the weirder instincts of the? Uh, $845 million spending <laughs> public that went out to see it? Or is this just a totally conventional biopic with an incredibly eccentric frontman? I saw this entire movie as the second one. Mm. You know, that, that a great deal of money and, you know, promotional firepower had been put behind a story about a, a truly interesting person. And, you know, there's, the, like, the process of making big movies is, you know, the 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 more that number goes up, you know, in the budget and the more you're expecting to make a lot of money, the more people start getting worried about alienating people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when you have like when you have a, a movie about a guy who was as as eccentric as Freddie Mercury was, um, a lot of what makes him interesting ends up getting, you know, sliced and diced and parsed and uh, watered down to the point where it's a little irresponsible. You know, like the. Okay, the the for me the main critique of this movie is that Freddie Mercury had two long term relationships in his life. One was one was with a woman, the next one was with a man. And in this movie, you get an awful lot of the first relationship and not a lot of the second one. And that positions his queerness as like equating it with this period in his career where he kind of went off the rails artistically, and that's a really, really uncomfortable equation that doesn't even, it isn't really borne out in his own life. You know, like the the last chapter of his life is the story of a, like a <laughs> stable long-term right, relationship right. with another human being that you don't get to see. And granted, that would have made it like a three-hour movie. Did I want to see a three-hour movie about Freddie Mercury? I'm not sure. Um, would I like to see a three-hour documentary about Freddie Mercury? Absolutely. I mean, the, the movie's great strength is Freddie Mercury. I mean, what, what an amazing human being he was and just his uh the, just the musical ability alone to say nothing of the rest of him <laughs> and what his personality was like is an amazing subject for a movie and mercy in yeah. our email thread you said that this was an incredibly entertaining mess uh yep. and you said a lot more about it but i think that and <laughs> i'm probably a bit closer to you than maybe my co-host who i think is leaning a little bit more towards the the mess than the entertaining but i certainly want to hear from lucy in a second but what made this movie so much for me is that lead presence of Rami, Rami Malek oh, as yeah. Freddie Mercury. Uh, tell me Lord, about what, what was the what was Rami the entertaining is a really yeah, fascinating. What was the entertaining part of yes. entertaining mess Good. for you? Like uh, what well, kept you with us? Yes. So everything Malek did throughout this, it was just like number one, I want to be your friend, but I don't want to just be your friend. I want to be the friend. I want to be your plus one to all your parties. I want to write like I don't necessarily want to wake up next to you, but I want to be the first person you text in the morning. That's a different <laughs> relationship, right? Um, it, but uh, at taking that and thinking about, well, you know, I actually didn't fall in love with Malik. I fall, fell in love with his uh, his portrayal of Mercury mm. in this. Right. And it, it it brings me to this place where so one thing, something else that I said in the uh, email thread was the pacing of this was epileptically fast. So like the first yes. hour they covered so much. eight years, nine years. <laughs> and I was like, OK, slow right. down. There's like so many details being missed out here. And it's because you're trying to do so much yeah um and if if i can talk a bit about like the, the the direction as well towards the end so you have the um 
of course, I had to fact check a little bit of the sequence because I was like, there's no way all of this happened in the amount of time that they're portraying. And to some degree, I was I was right. So um, uh, his second partner, whose name slips me, Jim, Jim Hutton, Hutton. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, he wasn't his butler. That was a thing. Um, they met right. they met in a completely different setting and they were together for far longer than they portrayed in this movie. Right. Number one. I mean, that's number one. Number two is he didn't. Um, find out that he had contracted AIDS prior to Live Aid, he actually found out that he had contracted it after. So it had no bearing on his performance, which is right. what the viewers led to believe within the film. Now, transitioning, pivoting to like direction, during that Live Aid concert, we are the viewer is okay so the producer the director gives so little grace and um trust the viewer so little that he tries to tell us how to feel in this mm. scene by instead of focusing on Freddie Mercury's performance, he turns to the crowd and he's like catching people wiping tears away from their face. And it was the totally. it was the hokiest thing I've ever seen. Well, I was like, this was a really great performance. And I don't know if you've had well, the opportunity to see the actual performance on yeah. YouTube. It's about twenty five minutes long. It's a great performance. That's what's interesting about it, right? Like the footage of the performance is Awesome. It's perfect. It's, it it's is amazing. awesome. <laughs> and their portrayal yes. of that footage of the performance right. wasn't as as good. Um, something I do have to say. So my partner Jesse and I we were watching it last night, and um, the Bohemian Rhapsody, but also the performance on YouTube. And he pulled it up on his iPhone. We were playing it on on YouTube, and we had to cast it to our TV. And he was just like, "I just want to be really meta here for a second. <laughs> on our, we are watching footage from the '80s on our iPhone and casting it to our TV. <laughs> There's so many <laughs> levels to this. But overall, I mean, it was a mess." It was an absolute mess, and I still have not completely um, come down from the high that I was on last night in watching it, um, but I I really liked it. Lucy, I, I don't think we're going to have time to talk about the director, Brian Singer, who has okay. his whole, uh, whole other suite of really terrible Me Too-related <laughs> accusations of basically trafficking in underage sex yeah. slaves. I mean, it's really horrifying, this Atlantic expose that came out, but I think that what we really responded to negatively in this movie in large part is its uh, equation of homosexuality with this inevitable uh, death and doom and sin and and failure. Tell me about what you kind of, before we move over to Green Book, which I think will go after your comment. Yeah, definitely. um, What what was it you responded to a little more squeamishly with Bohemian Rhapsody? Well, what stands out to me, it's also like, it's it's a terribly made movie. I think Malick is brilliant. Um, I I kept thinking, why is there such a brilliant actor in this movie? And and we can talk about that in, in Greenbrook too, a brilliant, brilliant actor in this movie that is not very good. Um, so there are all of these montages that I kind of got through by just saying to myself, okay, pretend you're watching like The Room or a really bad Hallmark movie when you're babysitting some kids and you can get through it that way. Um, but what what I remember two or three days later is the, the montages uh, sort of with bondage and S&M where everything is soaked in this red light and the viewer is supposed to think sin, 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 mm-hmm. sin, sin, mm-hmm. gay, 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 gay. Um, and, and that really sat very, very poorly with me. Um, I do a lot of coverage of the LGBTQ plus uh, community in New Haven. And so to see this depiction of Freddie Mercury's sexuality was really, really upsetting for me. 
And so I think we're going to go over to Green Book before we uh, we hear the clip. Uh, this is a movie. Maybe I'll very quickly read the official synopsis maybe from IMDb. When Tony Lip, played by Viggo Mortensen, a bouncer from an Italian-American neighborhood in the Bronx, is hired to drive Dr. Don Shirley, a world-class Jamaican black pianist, on a concert tour from Manhattan to the Deep South, South, they must rely on the Green Book to guide them to the few establishments that were safe for African Americans. Confronted with racism, danger, as well as unexpected humanity and humor, they're forced to set aside differences to survive and thrive on the journey of a lifetime. I'm sure we will have things to say about that synopsis, but first, uh, let's hear a clip of just a pretty typical interaction of the two main characters. We'll be attending many events before and after the concerts, interacting with some of the wealthiest and most highly educated people in the country. It is my feeling that your diction, however charming it may be in the tri-state area, could use some finessing. You mean diction like in more way? Like in the only way the word is ever used. Okay. Your intonation, inflection, your choice of words. Yeah, I got my own problems. Now I gotta worry about what people think about the way I talk? There are simple techniques I can teach you that are quite effective. I can help you. What why are you breaking my balls? Because you can do better, Mr. Balalonga. So we should say this movie has uh, received a lot of praise sort of in the uh, the big outer world outside the studio. It's been nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Viggo Mortensen, Best Supporting Actor for uh, Mahershala Ali. It won the Golden Globe for Best Picture, uh, Musical or Comedy, uh, and for Best Screenplay. But Mercy, I know that uh, neither of us are fans of this movie at all, and I just want to give the mic right to you here. Okay. Um, so what did I say about, uh, the Esquire piece? It was, uh, hot garbage. In the summer in the hood. In the summer in the hood. Okay. So this is like, this is, um, crawfish garbage in the summer of Buford, South Carolina after a fish fry, right? Like it was, it was bad and 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 not just a fish fry so when when you have a fish fry there's also like you know some uh, sweet potato pie and potato salad i want all of those smells that independently are good and that should be representative of Mahershala uh, Ali and Mortensen all these smells that are independently good being melted down into this hot pile of garbage hmm. right ali's performance amazing impeccable um and we, the black community, will always support him in everything that he does. Um, that said, <laughs> this piece is, I think, um, a, I, in the in the email thread, I said I called it, you know, one of the stubborn tropes that um, movie makers cannot get away from when portraying black people. Right? It's the ta- talented tenth, right? That that exceptional Negro trope, which is like. Which is like, you know, there's only there's only a few black people who can really rise to the top. And um, when they do, they will um, identify more so with the white American identity and black people will will come to dislike them, et cetera, et cetera. Antics ensue. Right. That trope is so incredibly damaging um, to um I, I will say all of the excellent black people that I know around me because it perpetuates this idea that, right, oh, you're not like the others, which is awful, number one. Number two, 
I think that the interaction between um, Ollie's character and Mortensen's character um, from beginning to end is uh, problematic, even though it has its, you know, uh, comedic relief throughout. You know, we see sort of this portrayal of this friendship that really Ali's character has to create because there's no effort on uh, Morrison's character side. And I think that is representative of a whole other slew of problems. Brian, in the email thread, I'm not saying that you liked or loved or anything like that about Green Book, but you sure. did you did declare yourself the whatever these movies are okay guy. And so I'm gonna ask, <laughs> yes. I'm gonna ask you to Absolutely. you know tell us why uh, these movies and in particular Green Book. Uh, you know, is, is this just a, another pat kind of conventional almost buddy comedy road trip movie that we've seen a million times and. It's, it's an okay one? See, to me, like, on its surface, yes. Like, it's, I mean, there's a reason that, like, so many people like it. Like, it's it's surface-level thing works, like, because the, the, the two actors yes, are fun to watch. Yes, people love racism here in this no. country. No, hey, <laughs> give me a second. <laughs> Sorry, Give guys. me a second. Like, on its surface, it's obviously working. A lot of people really like this movie. Um, I totally agree with you in the sense of... This movie, all I think the, the 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 where it starts to go sour is that this movie gives you ample opportunity to feel like that we're beyond the problems in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like it basically, you know, because they set it so firmly, like in the deep south in 1962, and for for us white audience members, you're allowed like. 27 different exit ramps where you can say, well, at least we're not like that anymore. <laughs> you know, good. and like, yeah. and that really stinks. Um, and I agreed with you that like the, the biggest problem for the actors was that like both, both of the main characters are stereotypes that the script isn't going to let them get away from. Right. There's never any chance for them to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, look, I agree with all of the problems that you're <laughs> raising with this movie, but it's, it's, it makes it interesting, right? Because it's, I think that us looking to Hollywood and particularly Hollywood's big studio machine to be giving us cutting edge work is a farce. <laughs> like, yeah, I think, you know, I think so. I, I think that the, the biggest reason I think of this movie is okay is because I have low expectations for Hollywood movies. And I'm sorry, I know that we have plenty more to say about Green Book, but I'm afraid we have a hard break coming up. I do want to say one very quick, last funny, funny, painfully funny thing is that the family of Don Shirley, the main character played by Maher Shirley, or I guess in the Oscars as the uh, supporting actor, uh, they all said that this is not what his relationship right, with the, right, the driver right. was like. So sure. even the family is disputing it. But I'm afraid we're going to have to go to a break. It's Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book. And we will end with some endorsements. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants. And the part of Bill Curry was played by Dana Carvey. On Monday's show, a President's Day special from Playing On Air. And on Tuesday, we're back with our stand-up comedy special, live on tape from the CT Improv Comedy Theater. And now, back to Lucy and Tom. Hey, and I'm Tom Breen. And I'm Lucy Gelman. And we've subbed in for Colin McEnroe on this week's notes. So before we get to endorsements, we do want to say a little note of thanks to Colin McEnroe. We've been joking uh, when we've been off mic for this episode that it's kind of like not having dad in the room. But um, but Colin's actually been out because he had surgery. He had a knee replacement 
Um, and we hope that he's doing really well. We really miss him uh, in the room, even though we're trying to keep uh, keep his spirit of fun very much uh, sort of in our banter. And, and as uh, far as we know, he is vacationing with a parakeet and he is getting his hair permed. So those things may be true. But right, right. Nevertheless, Colin, uh, this, we can only do this because you're not here. I don't think you would ever let us gush about you while here. But man, we are so lucky to live in a state where one of our flagship public radio programs is hosted by someone as intellectually curious, as open to letting, you know, people yes. like us, just right. like, you know, random young people off the street come in and, and pontif- pontificate. It's really, it's really <laughs> a blessing. So Colin, thank you for letting me and Lucy uh, co-host, but also thanks for putting on an incredible show at WNPR. But now I'll I'll, uh, I'll stop gushing and so, we can do some endorsing. Yeah, well, we, we were going to just go around the table and talk about how much we love Colin, but we also have to do this thing called endorsement. So Mercy, I'm going to I'm gonna toss it to you. Okay. Um, so within theme, um, my space-themed endorsements uh, this time around, I have two. Um, Netflix recently released a um, series. It has six episodes in it. It is appropriately called Mars. It is about the first crewed mission to Mars, which they estimate will happen in 2033. And by they, I mean the um, producers of this film. Um, the I'm sorry, series. The series is part documentary and part um, docudrama of sorts, and it has some of your favorite astrophysics influencers. So Neil deGrasse Tyson, Andrew Ann, Andy Weir, and Elon Musk, for instance. Um, so that is on Netflix. Check it out. There's six uh, episodes. So enjoy. And then the other one also on Netflix is called IO. You might have been passing it and thought it said 10, but it is in fact IO, which is a <laughs> Jupiter, uh, a moon of Jupiter. It is about what happens when um, the uh, when humans eventually destroy the Earth and there is only CO2 in the air and we can't breathe. And uh, I don't know, the countries band together and uh, send thousands of spaceships off to Io because apparently that is the most inhabitable planet in our solar system. It's not realistic, <laughs> but it is entertaining. <laughs> So there you go. We need a collection of just space-themed endorsements from Mercy on the nose because they're probably <laughs> tens of thousands. Brian, what are you endorsing today? Um, especially because we talked about movies that attempt to take on social issues and end up swimming in this very shallow end of a very deep pool. Um, I wanted to endorse a movie that dives pretty deep, which is called Sorry to Bother You, Mm -hmm. Um, a movie that I saw and a few other people I know have seen. I feel like I'm wandering the city looking for other people who have seen it so that we can talk about it together. (laughs) Do you wear a t-shirt while you do this? I wish. I should make that (laughs) t-shirt. So Sorry to Bother You, for for those of you who don't know anything about it, is basically, it it, it has a lot of parallels with um, Invisible Man. Um, It has a lot of parallels Mm -hmm. with another great book that I might as well endorse called Big Machine by Victor Laval. And it's one of those movies where it takes on like a million social issues at once with a great deal of comedy and a great deal of incisiveness to the point where the third act is really uncomfortable in like the best possible way. It has a, you know, there's a sense of the paint peeling off the walls in the final Mm. half hour of that movie that, um, yeah, makes it great. And talk about a movie that is for outsiders. I mean, that movie oh is not God. trying to fit into love it any, so much. any uh, conventional comedy right. or anything else I can think of. I it's, mean, it's a movie it's, like I haven't laughed 
It's incredible. So hard or been made so uncomfortable in a <laughs> long time. Yeah, so it's great. Wh- what's the deal with Equisapiens and what is that? Oh, I've- oh, oh no, no, no. Spoiler. <laughs> this is not a spoiler <laughs> territory. Okay. Oh, right. no, no, but, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure the, the internet exists for finding out what an Equisapien Equa? is. Yeah, but but oh, I do I do think no. we can safely say um, skip Green Book, skip Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> See, sorry to bother you. See, Romeo. Uh, skip Green Book for sure. Yeah. Oh, right. Skip Mercy that. Love. Skip that. So yeah. uh, for my uh, recommendation, I'm so I think Lucy and I both loved The Favorite, the new yeah. movie from Yorgos Lanthimos uh, that has been nominated for a whole bunch of things at, at the uh, this year's Oscars, including Best Picture. But I want to recommend another movie for, for people who, who like their movies weird. So this is directed by a Greek filmmaker named Yorgos Lanthimos who made The Lobster, that was his English language debut. If you saw that with Colin Farrell and Rachel Weisz, he also did The Killing of a Sacred Deer. But if you're really looking to go down the rabbit hole with some Yorgos <laughs> Lanthimos movies, two of my favorite movies ever and two movies that have really, you know, you leave a theater and you're actually uh, kind of just physically upset and not sure where you are in the world. It's a kind of a unique taste. Not everyone wants that when leaving a movie. But Dogtooth and Alps are two movies I cannot recommend strongly enough for so fully and meticulously and strangely creating these self-contained worlds with these really arbitrary sets of rules that if you break them at all, then you are uh, punished in these really extreme and violent ways. You know, Colin did a fantastic episode on Kafka a few weeks ago, if anyone was into that. Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos, you know, a lot of people throw around the word Kafka-esque. I think that he has truly earned that descriptor, uh, especially with his earlier uh, Greek films. And then um, before turning it over to Lucy, I'm going to very quickly recommend a book that both of us read recently. We went on a, a trip to Savannah, Georgia, which, oddly enough, like New Haven, is oriented around these squares. There are 22 beautifully laid out squares in the middle of the city. And uh, this book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, published in 1994, written by John Barrett, just dominates that town. It is like you cannot go anywhere without seeing uh, these books on sale at museums, uh, at gift shops, at bookstores, anywhere. And it tells the story of 80s uh, decadent, fading culture of of high high culture Savannah. It's really fascinating. Uh, Lucy, what is it that you are endorsing for us? Yeah, so I have two quick endorsements. The first is the breakout novel from an author named Rebecca Frumpkin. She is in her mid-20s, which is amazing to me because this novel is so, so good. So it's it's called The Come Down, and it follows two families in the Midwest. So it meets my first criteria for good literature because it's set not on the East Coast and not in New York especially. But it's set in Cleveland and... <laughs> and uh, and Chicago, and uh, followed th- these families who meet in a, a very unexpected way, and uh, s- sort of their histories converge and uh, diverge and converge again. Um, in in just she writes wonderfully. It's really really interesting. It's clear that she's had sensitivity readers on this. Um, she writes from multiple perspectives, and all of them are incredibly compelling. So the Come Down by Rebecca Frumpkin. I can't recommend it highly enough. And then very quickly, you know, it's after Valentine's Day, which is a little bit schmaltzy, and I don't know that any of us uh, in here especially like. Uh, but I was thinking about uh, one of the things that brings all of us together and one of the things that all of us have in common and then one of the things that I've been trying to uh, talk about with friends, which is good love, the idea of good love, even though that sounds very, very schmaltzy. But I, I want to endorse good love. And so if that means for you, take a night with your partner, be with them, 
do it. If that means for you, get a therapy appointment, do it. If that means uh, spend some time loving yourself, do it too. But good love. And we want to thank Jonathan McNichol, uh, who's been, or McPants. Thank you so much, McPants. (laughs) Thank you, my lovely Uh co-host. I love you. I love Uh, you too. (laughs) 